Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. This week, a look at gun violence in Tucson and new efforts to prevent it. It's been over a week since the deadly shooting on the University of Arizona campus that killed Dr. Thomas Meixner, the head of the Department of Hydrology and Atmospheric Sciences. For an update on what we've learned about the shooting since the day of the crime, we're joined by AZPM reporter Paula Rodriguez. She's been covering the shooting for us. Paula, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me in, Christopher. So let's kind of reset all of this. Details have been trickling out slowly over the last week, so remind us what happened. Last Wednesday at the University of Arizona, there was a shooting within the Harshbarger building. Um, Initial calls happened at 159, where someone within the building, a staff member, had called UAPD saying that then-suspect Murad Dervish entered the building and was not supposed to be there. And then within a few minutes, that's when the shooting happened within the office of Thomas Meixner, and UAPD got there at 204. When they got to the scene of the crime, the suspect had already left the building. Three hours later, they found the suspect um, headed towards Mexico on Highway 85, 30 miles south of Gila Bend. And for people who might not know exactly where Highway 85 is, that leads to the Lukeville crossing into Mexico that so many Tucsonans know on their way to Puerto Penasco. So what have we learned this week? Since the initial day, we've learned that from reporting from KGUN, they found in the search warrant inventory that within the car of the suspect, when they pulled him over, they found the 9mm handgun that was used to kill Thomas Meixner, and they found a twenty-five caliber handgun five knives, a machete, and a spray can of mace, as well as three cell phones and some luggage that had um, clothing as well. And if I remember some of the court documents initially that were filed, the suspect, Mr. Dervish, said something along the lines of, after he had been given his Miranda rights, I hope he's okay, but he probably isn't, and some, and some things like that, correct? Yeah, in those documents, he mentioned that statement as well as he was going to shoot himself, kill himself, um, but he couldn't do it. He felt very disrespected by the department and that a woman wouldn't have done that. As of now, from reports from other media outlets, uh, Dervish is now put on suicide watch. So faculty members, both those who have offices in the building and outside of it, have spoken out publicly about safety issues and things like that. What are they saying? There's been a lot of feedback from both on social media, Twitter, and in columns through like the Arizona Daily Star, where faculty are saying they felt very unprepared. They weren't given lockdown procedures on what to do when this happens. Um, They felt very disappointed by the lack of university response. They were told to continue working the next day. And it was on their own accord of whether or not to cancel classes, reschedule, all of the things that they had to do in order to accommodate what had happened. In response, the university did say there's counseling services. They offered a time of remembrance for faculty and staff the day after the shooting. 
and also a candlelight vigil. But overall, staff, from what I've seen on Twitter and within columns, they felt very, let's keep the business as usual kind of feeling, if that makes sense. One of our colleagues, Hannah Cree, talked with some students on campus about all of this and how they felt. Uh, First, we'll hear from Ian Storjahan. He was in class at the time of the incident and talked with Hannah about how his professor handled it. It didn't seem like he was trained uh, to handle a situation like that. We didn't really like turn off the lights or try to barricade anything or he really just continued to teach, which was really strange to me. So like acting like nothing happened. Yeah, it was definitely shocking. Marin Cote was also in class and told Hannah that the incident made her realize some things about campus. We have no shooting drills. We have, there's no locks on any of the doors, which I hadn't really noticed before. Um, Like there's nothing to really prevent this from happening. And even while it was happening, students were still walking around. So have you seen any further responses from students? Yeah, so last Friday I went to the candlelight vigil that happened on campus at the mall. I would say within the first few minutes of the vigil actually starting, what seemed to be a student ran up to the microphone where the president was speaking, took the microphone and started saying that essentially the blood from the shooting that happened on Wednesday was on the university's hands and that they're responsible for what happened and that more could have been done. And within minutes, police had escorted the individual off the stage and they continued as normal for the vigil. And now on the the university mall out by the union, there's a, a pillar, for lack of a better term, that you and I have both seen. Yeah, the pillar stands in the middle of the University Mall. It's black and it says, how many will be enough? And then it says, in memory of Thomas Meixner and the tragic events of October 5th, 2022. So what has the university said in response to these criticisms, both from faculty and from students? The university has opened up counseling sessions and encouraging students and faculty to go to their resources that they have, as well as holding, you know, the candlelight vigil. So last weekend, Tim Steller, a columnist with the Arizona Daily Star, got hold of some faculty emails that really showed a lot of concern and months of concern about potential violence and interactions with the suspect. I know you've been trying to track those down. What has the university's response been to that? The university and UAPD have admitted that it will be several months until I am able to receive those emails. In the meantime, the university has contracted an outside organization to conduct their own investigation of how they responded to events prior and after the shooting. And that outside investigation It's going to take some time. Yes, it will take 75 days, so two and a half months, and that will lead into winter break for students. Well, thanks for all your reporting, and we look forward to more reporting to come. Thank you. That was AZPM reporter Paola Rodriguez. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're looking at gun-related crimes in Tucson. 
Earlier this year, the Tucson Police Department announced it would form a new unit focused on reducing violent crime in the city. That unit's efforts are being buoyed by a $2 million grant from the U.S. Department of Justice. Tucson Police Captain Stacy Shaner is with the new unit. I started by asking her how it's trying to reduce violent crime in the city. Tucson Police Department has been engaging in a variety of efforts over the years to reduce violent crime, and some of them specific to uh, violent gun crime. In January 2022, the department uh, conducted a reorganization and created a bureau called the Special Services and Innovation Bureau. That bureau houses some of the shops that I run. So we have our community engagement resource section, which includes our mental health support team, substance use resource team, homeless outreach team, and the park safety officers, community service officers. On the other side of that, we have our violent crime reduction and emergency management section. The emergency management section was an existing unit within our department that houses the typical Homeland Security, threat liaison, emergency management responsibilities within the department, but the department decided to add in a focus on violent crime reduction. Another part of the Special Services and Innovation Bureau that is a a major driving factor of what we do to to develop and implement evidence-based practices is our analysis division, which has been great in helping us identify evidence-based strategies and using data to guide our activities and also use technology to track different practices that that we're putting into place. So we had years ago started a pilot program within one of our divisions called Strategic Deployment Missions, which is a hotspot-based practice. What we know is that violent crime is committed typically by a very small percentage of the population and focuses in very small Uh, physical locations within a city. And oftentimes those sites are chronic. Uh, No matter what we do, those sites continue to to face problems. And so uh, we're trying to take different initiatives to change the the chronic nature of those locations. The goal with being in those areas is trying to get a better idea of what's going on in the area that is driving crime in those locations. So we've, we've made adjustments to our programs over the last few years to try to improve them, to make them more efficient, to make it easier for the officers to engage in those activities and also find better ways to evaluate the programs. Another initiative that we have in place that's a large initiative for us right now is Place Networks Investigations. That is a partnership with the University of Cincinnati and the model focuses on social networks and how those networks uh, between both people and places, how those relate to crime in an area. So this project is a research project that we're involved in, and we have currently have three sites in Tucson that we're, we're engaging in, and you use a, a mix of enforcement and surveillance activity to, to get an idea of what's going on in an area, while at the same time creating that community-based involvement with a, uh, a board. So our board in Tucson currently has about 60 members and that's anyone from uh, department heads with city departments so it's not just public safety entities but also community members and that's that's a very important piece so you have your your different businesses or community entities or even just community residents it sounds like a lot of what you all are doing now is pretty database you know looking at the information and then figuring out ways to respond to it or and hopefully keep it from happening anymore, you know, intervene in it. 
when people think about violent crime, guns often come to mind. How often, because so much of this is data-driven, how prevalent is gun crime or guns used during the commission of a violent crime in Tucson? So when we were applying for a grant that we were recently awarded, um, we, we pulled some numbers on, on the stats. And of course, you can always uh, change the circumstances to get those numbers. But um, from 2018 to 2021, um, 80% of homicides involved gun violence or gun crimes. Um, we've also seen it, seen an increase in aggravated assaults, which typically involve firearms. So gun violence is a significant concern for the, the city of Tucson, um, as it is for many cities across the nation. For example, when we had the, the shooting on the University of Arizona campus, we saw officers, not only from the University Police Department, but TPD responding. How much of a relationship does TPD have, especially when it comes to things like gun crimes with the University Police Department, Pima County, Marana, all the surrounding agencies? Absolutely. So the University of Arizona, uh, being that it's a, a college police department, has a smaller force, right? Their, their manpower, um, their staffing is, is smaller than the city police department is. So, of course, we have agreements with, with that agency to assist when necessary. You know, homicides or, or gun violence that occurs on the campus because it's a smaller footprint within the city doesn't occur within the, the other city jurisdiction. So whatever needs that they have as far as investigating, uh, we will support. And, and you mentioned other city departments. We oftentimes interact and collaborate with Beaver County, Marana, Oro Valley, uh, Sarita, South Tucson, um, in, in a variety of ways. And actually, uh, you know, Chief Kazmar has he came in here in, the, in December of 2021 um, and has really pushed uh, even further collaboration with, with other public safety partners in the metro Tucson area. I know the city of Tucson just received a $2 million federal grant specifically aimed at gun violence. I know it's new. Do you all have any word on how that money could be used? Probably not all of it. Um, I'm sure you'd be excited of all of it, but for your unit? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I was involved uh, with helping to apply for that grant. So uh, as the grant was announced, we uh, applied with what our goals were in mind. Um, this is a community-based violence intervention program um, initiative grant. So the, the goal is to build a program that uses the community to address violent crime in our cities. And one of the things that our department uh, is lacking, despite the recent growth and, and development of our analysis unit, is specifically social network analysts. So these are analysts that have the ability to research and analyze uh, social networks, whether that be people or places, uh, using a variety of tools. And that helps us to identify those that are engaged in criminal activity and those who are at risk of being involved in criminal activity, either as an offender or as a victim. Those social network analysts will be able to help with a variety of gun violence projects that we have going on, but ultimately the service that they can provide allows us to be more direct and pointed with our enforcement efforts. So when we go into a community that may face chronic criminal activity, we're not going in there with a broad brush and uh, we are able to focus on those that are engaged in that. 
while helping to support with services and other needs, those that live in the community that are at risk of being engaged in violent activity or just unfortunately have to live with that in their daily lives. According to some data from the CDC, almost three quarters of gun-related deaths in Pima County between 2018 and 2020 were suicides. Are those gun-related events handled by the Violent Crime Reduction Unit at TPD, or is it one of the other units like the mental health unit uh, that we were talking about? Yeah, so gun deaths that involve suicide are a little different than talking about gun violence that is occurring in public space within the community, right? And and both very tragic circumstances. One of my responsibilities is, is our outreach unit, which includes our uh, mental health support team, our substance use resource team, and our homeless outreach team. And the goals of those units are to partner with providers and other community entities that can help us in addressing and responding to those types of needs within the community. You know, access to firearms obviously is a contributing factor to somebody's success in in committing suicide. And so while it's not directly related to a gun violence reduction strategy, it is something that is is considered within our bureau and and we try to find ways to, to approach that. It really sounds like the uh, the older policing idea of the proverbial more boots on the ground is not necessarily uh, where TPD and I'm sure a lot of departments are looking for gun violence and violent crime reduction. There are a lot of new tools, it sounds like, uh, that don't necessarily equal more boots on the ground, just different boots on the ground. You're absolutely right in that. Um, I like how you put that, different boots on the ground. Like most law enforcement agencies across the country, law enforcement retention and recruiting is a struggle. So the days of being able to have a sustainable effect on crime in an area solely by using law enforcement presence are are long gone. And I would actually venture to say that's not the appropriate response either, right? So the idea is we want to be more holistic about what our response is to public safety in general. You know, we know that putting an officer in an area has an effect to deter crime, but that effect is extremely short-lived. And these areas that we are focusing on in our micro locations through the different initiatives are chronic spots. And it's not sustainable to, to only address that with police in the area. We have to respond to the greater city as a whole. Um, so you're absolutely right. Putting different boots on the ground means partnering with other community providers and community members to provide resources to an area from a variety of different angles, not just law enforcement. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That was Tucson Police Captain Stacy Shaner. One piece that isn't a part of Tucson's efforts to reduce violent crimes are gun buybacks. While the city used to have a buyback program, a 2013 state law that required such programs to resell any functional weapons it purchased all but ended the buybacks. But a recent article in Pew State Line says such programs may not have been very effective. Matt Vassiligambros looked at multiple studies on the effectiveness of gun buybacks for the article. He started by telling us how such programs work. Gun buybacks are a a widely popular event that are held all over the country in red states and blue states. And basically, police departments or city councils 
will host these events where people can turn in their firearms, whether it's a handgun, a semi-automatic rifle, or you know your grandpa's shotgun, and will accept the gun, no questions asked, and give a gift card or some sort of cash incentive. Basically incentivizes folks to turn in unwanted uh, firearms that they don't want in the house, you know, around their children. Maybe it was a family heirloom or, you know, maybe uh, they have too many guns and they're looking for a little more pocket change. So you did a recent article in Pew State Line that reviewed a number of studies about the effectiveness of these gun buybacks. What'd you find out? We found that gun buybacks are included in dozens, if not hundreds of cities, package of gun violence prevention programs. The thinking among city leaders is that, hey, if we get more guns off the street, then there's less likelihood that there's going to be gun violence. Well, that is more of a a feel-good policy than an actual effective policy. We found that there is no correlation between gun buyback programs and a decrease in, say, homicides or suicides. And the problem is, there are several problems, but you know, one of the big problems is that there are more guns in the United States than there are people. There are just too many guns out there to effectively get them off the street. And so while these programs might seem uh, effective in terms of getting guns off the street, the folks who city leaders need to get guns off the street, um, you know, like uh, folks who commit crimes of the sort, they don't have a lot of incentive to give up their gun in exchange for a gift certificate to a grocery store. It's their livelihood. For others who would turn in that gun, you know, say it's a family heirloom or what have you, you know, they're not the ones who are committing crimes. So there have been effective gun buybacks in the past. Australia comes to mind, but the situation in the United States doesn't really allow for an effective gun buyback. Did any of your research show that maybe we're just doing these buybacks wrong or as you were saying, it's just not what people are interested in doing. I don't think that we're doing them wrong necessarily. Uh, folks I've talked to had a few suggestions. I talked to a, a community leader in Philadelphia who calls himself the poster boy of gun violence. He's been shot several times and has really made it his life's mission to get these guns off the street. And he said, basically, cities are offering too little money. In some situations, uh, cities will offer $50 for a semi-automatic weapon. And he says that number should be closer to $500. If you're really going to incentivize folks to get their guns away from them, you need to offer more money. Other folks said that this needs to be part of a broader package of gun violence prevention programs. And Australia gets it mentioned quite a bit. And for those who aren't aware, Australia had its worst mass shooting in the 1990s, killed dozens of people, it was a horrific event, and a mandatory gun buyback was included among a package of programs, which basically said, we will give you money for automatic weapons, which we're now banning. And it was effective in reducing guns by 20% in Australia. Now, the United States is different than Australia. We have more guns, we are not geographically isolated, and it doesn't look like we're going to have any sort of broad national 
gun violence prevention legislation from Congress anytime soon. And we have the Second Amendment. And we have the Second Amendment, exactly. So the broader issue is that the United States doesn't really have, A, the political motivation to do this, or B, just, you know, the environmental. These are happening in isolated communities in a very big country where a bordering state has different gun laws than the state in which the buyback is happening. These programs are good for messaging. They're good for bringing about a dialogue about gun violence. But in terms of raw numbers and reducing those uh, homicides, reducing those suicides, they just don't work. Arizona passed a law about 10 years ago that if a municipality, a municipal government does a gun buyback, that they have to sell those guns They can't destroy them, as the city of Tucson was doing. Did you find any research about what happens to guns after a buyback and whether that affects the success at all? I don't have uh, much research. I know about that law in Arizona, that similar laws in Arizona have prevented localities, including Tucson, from enacting uh, stricter gun laws than the state that are prevented from doing it. Their hands are kind of tied there. Though I did talk to experts who said the way that the Arizona law is written does mean that those guns go back into circulation. And the most effective way, they say, to have a buyback is to destroy those weapons as soon as you get them. Are a lot of municipalities or gun buyback sponsors doing that around the country, or is it more similar to what we see here in Arizona? Arizona is in a a league of its own in terms of gun buybacks. Almost every municipality around the country will destroy these firearms as soon as they're bought back. In one case, I found Miami did a buyback and they are sending those weapons to Ukraine for their fight against uh, Russia. The law in Arizona, which again has been paired with preventing localities in the state from passing any sort of stricter gun laws, has prevented them from destroying those weapons and, like I said earlier, recirculating those uh, to the public, which experts that I talked to say negates the whole purpose of a buyback. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you very much. That was Matt Vassilagombros, a writer at Pew Trusts. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Samantha Larned. Hannah Cree also contributed to this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.